Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Healthy Empath Podcast. Today, I am joined with Dr. Keith Witt. He is a licensed clinical psychologist, lecturer, and author dedicated to studying, teaching, creating transformative healing systems. He has been practicing psychotherapy in Santa Barbara, California for over 40 years. He decided to become a psychotherapist at the early age of 15 when he entered therapy himself and realized it was, in many ways, a natural native tongue to him. He knew immediately that he wanted to participate and contribute, not just as a client, but also as a therapist and teacher. He's been exploring and following that instinct ever since. He has a background that can go on and on and on. And you know, he's written so many books and studied with um, incredible people and just you know, from his own experience. Uh, so to me, he's a true elder, true healer, someone who has embodied his soul as much as he can. He spent tens of thousands of hours helping people navigate you know, their psyches and their own human experience. So that's something I definitely want to you know, ask them about as well. So thank you very much, Dr. Keith, for being here. And welcome to the show. Mike, it's my pleasure. Okay. So can you get us started a little bit with your healing journey? I mentioned, you know, you started really early. So what was going on there? And how did you just know like that's what you wanted to do? And what were some of the more kind of juicy things that you had to heal through and work on in your own life path? I had a pretty good childhood in the 50s, but you know, 1950s were somewhat of an innocent time. Um, and in the first stages of adolescence from nine to 13, the first stage and the second stage of adolescence, 13 to 15, people's brains mature, their consciousness expands. They begin to differentiate from their family and move back out into the culture. Um, American culture, in 1963 and 1964 was somewhat terrifying um, and um, provocative. Um, and there were a lot of deaths in my family. My parents were having drinking problems and I began to have uh, depression, uh, delusions, uh, not major ones, but you know, it was, the, it was adolescent uh, stuff expanded and my family was beginning to disintegrate with the drinking. So my parents got us into therapy uh, and in therapy, a uh, couple things happened. One, uh, it was like a natural tongue. There was something about uh, the room, the magic of the room that, that spoke to me more than anything else had spoken to me at that point. And at that time, you're primed, 13 to 15, your nervous system is looking for roles, looking for uh, ways to grow, looking for role models. You see that with 15-year-olds all the time. They have pictures of people on the wall that are their, their models. And so that was happening, but also I was getting crazier and crazier. So my, my, my mother had a personality disorder. So the therapist realized either my mom or me needed to get out of the, the system because we were driving it crazy. So um, they decided on me because I wasn't contributing anything. I was just a pissed off adolescent. So my dad said, let's go look at sports cars. And we jumped in our 54 uh, 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 Ford. And we didn't look at sports cards. We stopped in front of the Wells Neuropsychiatric Clinic and he said, you're going to be here for a while. So I didn't, they, they committed me. And in 1965, the treatment of choice for teenagers was electroconvulsive therapy. And I had 23 electroconvulsive therapy treatments over the next six weeks, which gets you disoriented, gives you amnesia. But also the depression that I had went away. And I, and I really had a, had a come to Jesus moment to myself. I have to decide which direction I want to go, or this kind of stuff is going to happen to me. And there were two passions that I had. One was the passion of being the warrior, and one was the passion of being the healer. 
And the closest I could come in 1965 to those two was I entered a karate studio, um, Shoshodokan Karate uh, Studio when I got out and I started studying psychotherapy and didn't look back. Three years later, I had my black belt in Shotokan Karate. 10 years later, I had my first license. Uh, 12 years later, I had written my first book and gotten my PhD. And I continued. Uh, since then, studied a lot of people. Um, uh, in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, I discovered integral psychology, which is a meta theory that, that is a wide embrace for all theories. And I've been, I've been, that's heavily informed my work, particularly my eight books. And that's my story. Um, one thing about Shotokan Karate is we sat Zazen before and after every practice, but they never told us it was Zazen. We just did it. I didn't find out it was Zazen until 15 years later when I studied Zazen. And went, oh, it was a Japanese karate studio. We were all sitting in Zazen. And I continued to meditate and continued to do yogas um, ever since. And as a therapist, you develop a relationship with the other world. Um, a channel in the spirituality that's a felt channel. Uh, when I do training now, I train therapists, but mostly I want them to have at least one channel in the other world. I want them to be a medium or to do tarot or do astrology or, you know, I have channel teachers that they work with. I want people that have that understanding because I believe that the best psychotherapy uh, combines all the, the, the understandings that we have today about healing, plus someone who, um, has a felt sense of presence in this world and the other world. Yeah. Well, the, when I read about the shock treatment, I was shocked. <laughs> yeah. Pretty shocking. <laughs> like, like, wow. Like what is, um, but they, you also mentioned that it, it helped. I mean, looking back as a therapist oh, now, yeah. like you're probably not, wouldn't recommend that to anyone, but yeah, you, you think, you think it like truly like helped you at that time or is it was what you needed regardless you know, of how, if it seems a little bit barbaric. <laughs> it, it was barbaric. Uh, they, don't, they don't allow people to do more than 12 treatments. I, I saw an article I loved once that said that shock treatment increased neurogenesis, which gave me a little bit of reassurance. In, most, um, in, a, in a lot of indigenous societies, the shaman, when they're about 15, are put through a series of ordeals where they have a symbolic death and rebirth into their new identity. And that summer, the, that electric shock was my death and rebirth. And so I am intensely grateful to have had somehow I, with the culture, I engineered that death and rebirth experience. Um, and so, you know, my parents were doing the best they could. They stopped drinking. They did well. They, they continued to have a long and happy life. My two brothers uh, did well. Um, I ran into my, my wife and I went and had uh, a lunch with my therapist thir 25 years after the last time I'd seen him. And what was weird is that he and I laughed the same, smiled the same. My unconscious had used him as a model to grow towards. And so, yeah, it was barbaric. I, so I got to say, if, if someone said, I want my kid to have, um, go on antidepressants, or I want him to have like three electroshock treatments, I would choose the electroshock treatments over the antidepressants, though I wouldn't recommend either one of them. I'd recommend a lot of other things, uh, yeah. which I do all the time. Uh, uh, the, the, for a variety of reasons. So yeah, I'm, at, given the culture I was in in the 60s, I mean, the 60s, the, the, we know what we're going through now. And when was it worse than this? It was worse than this in the 60s, okay? I mean, the, in the demonstrations, people were being shot and killed. Um, mm -hmm. 
p police were arrest arresting uh, us, um, uh, beating us, um, lying about us. Um, uh, there was a lot, uh, black men were still being, and women were still being lynched in the South. I mean, it was the Vietnam War based on, a, on, a, on an illegal and lie. Uh, was still raging and our friends and family were uh, put in harm's way and dying. My brother was in the Marine Corps, worked for the CIA in Vietnam while I was protesting the war. We were one of those, you know, like red-blue families. I mean, it was just a crazy time that presaged social upheaval and change, which I hope this time will too. Um, but it was, it was a very crazy time, so I feel lucky that I had the developmental path that I had. I found psychotherapy and studied with brilliant people and began doing my first sessions in 1973. And I've done over 65,000 sessions since then. Wow. Wow. So I got chills when you were talking about uh, the picking up like the, the patterns of this therapist. And then it almost like you were started to, you know, mirror his nervous system or his patterns or something like that and pick that up. And then, yeah, I got chills, which is kind of like a guiding force for me. So I want to talk a little bit about that or some possible implications, because that's probably happening to everyone on some level. Yes. And unconsciously, which yes. is kind of scary to think about. So it's like, and especially if you like your children, your teenagers, like whose mirror system, whose nervous systems are they going to mirror? Like, do you, have you thought about that? Have I thought about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was in your book, so. <laughs> you know, read my eight books. <laughs> I've thought about that endlessly. Um, we have mirror neuron systems in our brains. Okay, we are it creates like a fear, our, like you want to protect your kids. I don't want to know that person. Well, the way you protect <laughs> Go ahead. the way you protect your kids is by having good relationships with them and telling them the truth mm -hmm. and understanding their interior experience. You know, when you're by the time your kids are ten or eleven, you've either done that or you haven't. And if you hadn't, you could still begin, but it's you've really wasted a lot of time. Um. Most of our brains are designed to be social and we want to fit into social groups desperately. Um, that's, a, that's a drive, it's hardwired, it's genetic. And specifically, we want to fit into groups we identified with. For instance, voting research shows that people vote the way they think like-minded people would vote rather than what they want. So when they go to vote, they go, okay, so what is the group I identify with? What would that group want me to do? Okay. Now that's if you're not awake. So what, what's the answer to that? The answer to that is to understand your, your children's interior experience and provide them with the, the love and, and boundaries that they need and, and talk honestly to them about everything. And then as that happens, you develop a relationship where they feel like their interior selves, their spirits, both are in harmony with parents, but also they go to their parents for their best understanding of what's true and what is compassionate understanding. Um, and when that happens and they go out into the other world and they have experiences that don't mirror that, they have cognitive dissonance, they'll come and they'll begin to process it. And out of that process and out of the dialectic comes deeper truth. Uh, you know, Socrates talked about the dialectic 400 BC. Um, it's not a debate. The dialectic is you and I together looking at something eager to be influenced by each other, looking for the deeper truth realizing that any truth that we have is just the best truth of the moment and that there's more truths to come. Um, and so if you have that, and I've seen that with a lot of kids with modern parents, 
what they do is, is those relationships then and that interior sense of looking for deeper truth inoculates them from the excesses that they find um, from the outer world. Those excesses generally involve objectifying and either attacking or, or extracting from other people, or exploiting other people. And so if you, if you have a family culture where objectifying other human beings is considered wrong and ugly, um, then when a child goes into an environment or a teenager goes into an environment where other people are being objectified, it hurts. They have, and then there's cognitive dissonance. My, my group is objectifying other people, women, blacks, Asians, whoever, foreigners. But my inner sense says that's wrong. And then out of that discomfort comes the dialectic, which comes deeper understanding of how people grow through different worldviews. And certain worldviews are prone to certain kinds of objectification um, that continues through the first four or five levels of human development. And, and you know, observing that helps protect you. Uh, awareness regulates. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, that's what you do. Yeah. So say you have, you picked up these patterns and this, yeah, mirroring someone from your childhood, you know, if you, so a big, a big part, what I see you know, going on is just like the lack of elders, the lack of role models, the lack of ceremony, ritual, all that stuff. So if you didn't have a, a father, a positive, you know, masculine archetype in your life growing up. And so you're, and then you're older and now you're recognizing that, oh my gosh, you know, I'm just like, you know, my alcoholic dad or something, you know, like, you know, and so how do you break that nervous system patterning? Well, first of all, I'm sorry I didn't answer your question fully. Um, so we look for models, particularly 13 to 15. We're looking for models of manliness or womanliness, of models of, of activity, models of people that we um, want to grow towards. So that's the, and, and then as we find them, we tend to move in that direction. Um, uh, and if we're lucky, we have cultures where we can discuss that. And that's models in every area, our, our gender identity, our sexuality, our social, our professional identity, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you're not, if you don't have a model that, that attracts you, you suffer. Um, as I did at 13, I didn't have a model of development. I had parents that I loved a lot. And my father was a warrior, but he wasn't the kind of warrior that I needed to be. Um, um, and so I found people that were. Uh, and there are areas he was a model for me, but there are other areas that he wasn't. Um, when you have that yearning, you pay attention to it. You go, okay, you don't try to avoid it. As we in America try to avoid pain with substances and activities and so on. You pay attention to it. You know, you allow it to exist, to be aware of it. And then in certain situations, like when you got a tingle, your body goes, wait a minute. There's something I want to focus on here. And you focus on it. And if, and if, you're, if you're a man and you're focusing on wanting to have um, um, a, a more integrated sense of self as a masculine being, you get a little tingle from some masculine being. And you go, okay, what is that? And as you move into that, you encounter challenges. Those challenges as you meet them are ordeals. Those ordeals as you meet them are, are places where you discover yourself. You discover your basic masculine self or feminine self if you do it as a feminine person. And they can appear anywhere. They can appear in sports or relationships. 
they appear, they tend to appear differently for more masculine and more feminine people. Uh, and as you move in that direction and you discover yourself, you have more clarity about the models that attract you. And you get more granular and you get more focused in terms of your path. And as that happens, then there's a developmental process that we all have. We all have an instinct for self-transcendence. It's, it's a hardwired instinct in humans. Um, a, a famous uh, personality researcher, Robert Kloniger, found about six or seven characteristics that all people have to some extent. And all of them have to do easily, you can understand how they have to do with survival, like cooperation, persistence, harm, harm avoidance, novelty seeking, those kinds of things, reward dependence. But self-transcendence is one of them. That's the evolutionary instinct coming through us, through consciousness. We want to transcend ourselves. We want to grow. We have an, some of us more strongly than others. The people that are most strong in this become the seekers, the ones that continue. Um, to, to, to this current identity is, is good, and I want to expand into it with an integral we call horizontal health. But I want to go beyond it, which we call vertical health. I know that there's a, a consciousness beyond my consciousness that I'm reaching for with contemplative work, with um, self-inquiry, with, with, with meeting challenges, those kinds of things, self-care. All those things, tended, contemplative practice especially, all those things move us forward. And then we become a different person. Um, we're still ourselves, but we're looking through different eyes at the world. That's how development works. And if you're in a relationship, you're evolving with another person. And that adds a lot of level of complexity and so one of my areas of specialty is working with relationships, couples, especially about 30% of my practice is couples. Hmm. Because either a couple is supporting each other's mutual evolution or they're not. And if they're not, they suffer, it causes problems. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of divorce in this country. 40% of first marriages, 60% of second and 70% of third marriages end in divorce. Why people are not able to support each other's evolution adequately um, in certain ways. But when they do, um, then that accelerates the process along with contemplative practice and other, other things we can do. And we yeah. grow. Yeah. Uh, a whole conversation on relationships would be very helpful because most of my clients I work with are all, you know, been divorced and relationship problems, but I do want to focus on shadow today and shame and some of that stuff. Sure. So, but they're all related, of course. So one thing I resonated a lot with you is talking about the warrior and the healer. These are two main archetypes in my life. You know, I was in the army infantry and then transit, you know, got into being a healer and really embodying that archetype and learning about it. And I still struggle with the, the warrior archetype mm -hmm. and, you know, finding the, how I really want to live that archetype in in this world and in this life. And one aspect of that is, well, from, you know, actually being in war, and when I first had, you know, had my incredible, mystical, life-changing, you know, healing experience that just, you know, opened up a whole new life for me, I threw out the, the warrior totally, right? Which we can maybe start using that to transition into shadow. And right, so just throw, throw out the baby with the bathwater and just really didn't like, you know, I saw all these people talking about being a warrior. I was like, well, you know about being a warrior, like never been to war, like shut up, like all this like really like bothered me. And then, you know, coming around to it, you know, <laughs> realize, oh, like you don't have to like completely throw that out. So 
when it comes, what is what does a healthy warrior look like in this day and age? And you know, with the people that the sh shaming each other is just out of, out of control. Like, why do people shame so much? How does a warrior handle conflict? What does a warrior do? How do you balance action versus non-action and violence versus non-violence? So wh wherever you want to go within there, let's let's take it. Well, first of all, uh, you know, it's an intense. It's an intense thing to be in the infantry. Okay, so you know you went through an intense series of experiences. Um, now the modern military is way, way more advanced than the military of my in my era. Okay, you know, nineteen sixties. But still, there's a difference between being a warrior and a soldier. I mean, mm -hmm. No offense. No, definitely. I've okay? learned that. And the difference for me, and one of the reasons I protested the war, I didn't protest the war because I was nonviolent. Or I didn't even believe in just wars. A war himself. Yeah, I, 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 the only time that I, I can do, will do violence or be willing to do violence is if my own personal principles tell me. The idea of shooting an anonymous person is impossible for me. I couldn't do it. Um, um, I wouldn't do it. Uh, refused. <laughs> refused to do it. Now, you know, that, all that electric shock was useful then because I, I used it to get out of the draft. You know, I, I had I'm to, crazy. I can't go in. <laughs> yeah, I had to convince the draft board that I was crazy. You know, and those those 20, 23 uh, uh, electroshock treatments gave me street cred when I, you know, kind of walked into the draft board and pretended I was schizophrenic. I mean, you know, it worked out pretty well. Um, but again, you know, I had to, well, there's a difference between warrior and soldiers. So I studied martial arts, okay? Shotokan was just the first martial art I studied. I studied martial arts intensely for about 20 years many of them and the bottom line around a warrior isn't about the violence you know as if once you decide on a direction as a man because we're going to talk about man now the women could be warriors too but i'm going to talk about the masculine yeah bring that into or at the end if you can because there's probably gonna be more female listeners but obviously yeah and it, the, 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 there's a, a, a developmental sequence once you develop a desire to go in a certain direction, say the direction of healing. Well, then you become, to a certain extent, an acolyte. You go, okay, you know, I'm available to be instructed in healing. And, you know, you find teachers. Surrender to a certain extent to those teachers. At a particular point, you shift um, into uh, having a sense that you would sacrifice for your core principles. Okay, someone who's willing to sacrifice for his or her core principles that's being a warrior. That, that when I'm put in this spot, I will, I will put my principles over my comfort or safety. And in those points where you're tested and you do that, you discover your warrior nature. Now, the warrior seeks out, uh, Miyamoto Musashi's book, Book of Five Rings, is probably the best book on the warrior that was ever written, 1745. He, he wrote it when he was 62 before he died. And basically his point was you find those core principles and you dedicate yourself to them. He was a sword fencer, but you can apply it to everything, healing included. Now, if you continue to do that, you put yourself in those situations. After a while, you stop looking for ordeals to find yourself. You found yourself. Then you start having more impulses to serve. And you transition from the warrior where you're, you're wanting to find yourself in combat or find yourself in challenge 
to wanting to heal and help. And then you're transitioning into the man of wisdom. And that's a developmental sequence of the masculine. Women can get to woman of wisdom through the warrior archetype, but women tend to have other channels that they can get to, to woman of wisdom. In my experience, there's a wider variety. Um, generally with more masculine people, you, you need to discover, will I stand up for my principles? Will I be true to that interior sense of, of rightness? And then that next step that you want to take to share with others, to help others develop and so on um, into man of wisdom. Now, how does shame work into all this? Uh, shame is a misunderstood emotion, which is why I wrote my book called The Gift of Shame. Um, we would not be social with each other without shame. All mammals experience shame um, starting about the same age as human toddlers, around 10 or 11 months. Uh, toddlers uh, before 10 or 11 months don't blush. There's not a separate enough sense of self to feel shame if they're disapproved of. They get angry, they get frightened, they get hurt. They don't get embarrassed. Embarrassment only comes online. Shame only comes online around 11 or 12 months. Um, followed by disgust. Disgust only comes online around four or five years old. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very late maturing emotion. And there's moral disgust as well as physical disgust. How do, why does shame come online? Well, at around 12 months old, a child is able to, to feel psychologically separate from a mother. Um, and feels like a separate, a separate self, recognizing I need to go to her for comfort, the kid can begin to walk and get around. And when um, uh, an external figure disapproves, generally not verbally, like, no, you know, you see my disapproving look. What happens to the child's nervous system is they have a shame reaction. Um, they blush. The, the muscles around their neck and chest get weak. Um, they look down. They freeze. Now, this does enormous amount of socialization. One, it's a way that a mother can control a child at a distance. I mean, think hunter-gatherers. Okay, your kid is running around while you're picking carrots, and she see that kid moving out towards a bush where you know there might be snakes. You go, stop. Well, I'm sorry, I just adjusted. Can you, can you still hear me? Okay. And you go, stop. The child will feel the disapproval, freeze, look down, it's a survival characteristic, and, and a little bit of social learning takes place. That social learning helps that child be more pro-social because around two years old, we can observe ourselves. And if we observe ourselves violating a rule or a standard, we will feel shame or guilt or embarrassment. That's a shame family of emotions and later on moral disgust. And this is how seven and a half billion people get along on this world. They all have an interior sense of what's appropriate activity and they begin to go against it. <clears throat> Their unconscious gives them a message, a shame emotion, and it inhibits them. And it keeps them within the socially accepted bounds that they've learned. Now, that being said, there's a lot of complexity because also we don't like that emotion. Shame is a very painful affect, it's parasympathetic collapse. And if you keep on going down into shame deeper and deeper and deeper, you can die. Parasympathetic sympathetic collapse leads to the freeze response and the fight flight freeze hierarchical response to stress and if you go too far into it you can just die and so we defend against shame either by following the rules or by developing defense mechanisms like projection you know i didn't do it you did it denial not me scapegoating i go kick somebody else when i made a mistake um, rationalization yeah it was really okay for me to lie because 
Okay, these start developing a nervous system at a very young age, 14, 15 months, and then be, continue to develop until we become mature enough to, be, to reflect on them. And your brain really isn't mature enough to reflect on those processes until it's formal operational, 13, 14, 15 years old. By then, those defenses are in place. And when you're with another person, because we're all intensely relational, if I get defensive with you, if I feel like you're, you're threatening me, I'll go into a defensive reaction. Um, and that defense mechanism elicits the defense in you. And we, then we develop a relational defense system. And this is what causes so many problems in relationships. So we're doing it to avoid the shame of recognizing I just made a mistake somehow in, in threatening you or hurting you. And I'm not, I don't want to look at my part of the problem. I want to look at your part of the problem. You know, anybody who's worked with couples knows that when a couple comes in, each one comes in firmly convinced that if you changed, everything would be better with us. Yeah. And why is that? I don't want to look at the parts of me that are creating the problems because it makes me shame to think about those things. And so once you can begin to look at shame with a certain amount of equanimity, you know, develop a witness, do contemplative practice, for instance, and go, if I'm ashamed, then I'm violating a standard or a rule. So should I follow that rule? Should I refine that rule? Um, um, what, should I, what should I do to make the shift so that I begin to alleviate that sense? And following the rule will give me that shift. Refining the rule, perhaps, will give me that shift. Um, going into the dialectic with somebody else about the rule might help. Okay? And as I do that, then shame becomes a guide, a moral guide. And as we, as we continue to use it in that fashion, we're less frightened of feeling it more likely to observe it when it arises. And then as we use it as a spiritual guide and an emotional guide, um, it becomes less uncomfortable and more interesting. Um, and that's, that's the directionality of, of uh, the development of dealing with shame emotions. Um, eventually, you feel guilty if you didn't do your meditation this morning. Okay, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> if you, you know, you didn't, you weren't tired, you were a little bit egoic in that conversation. I put a little bit too much of me forward in that conversation, feel a little ashamed. Huh. So I need to pull back from that. Um, now, that being said, there's an awful lot of cultural problems that are associated with this that yeah. we've all seen. Because every culture has its strengths and weaknesses and, and dangers. Um, and that's part of what's informing the world today. Uh, and we're seeing a huge, huge uh, shifts. I haven't seen shifts this significant since the 60s myself. And, and they were pretty profound. And, and, but there's, there's also differences now from the 60s. The level of discourse and understanding is, is more sophisticated. Um, and, there, and people now are more aware of interiors, of uh, the psychological constructs are more commonly understood. Um, the complexity of problems, they're called wicked problems, are more commonly understood. So you look at the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement, for instance, and you can't divorce that from income inequality. Um, you can't divorce um, uh, the problems with police with the war on drugs or um, institutional racism or the, 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 the historical purpose of police forces to maintain power structures um, that's kind of embedded in, in the social structures. Um, those kinds of things make for wicked problems. But that being part of the dialogue um, is encouraging. Uh, um, now there's discouraging things happening too. Uh, but the, the thing that is most alarming to, to me is 
is there's a normalization of objectifying other people and then doing violence to them psychologically or physically. Um, that's been the big problem historically and throughout humanity, objectify other people and either extract from them or attack them. Um, and so this is what's alarming to a lot of us when we see that happening. And I, I find myself doing it and catch it because I'm observing it and, and then try to reach for a compassionate understanding. Um, and compassionate understanding then rehumanizes other people and I'm not objectifying them anymore. Yeah, so yeah, compassionate understanding is like on the other side of shame because if right now, well, I like what you said and when I, you know, I read this as well and it kind of gave a yeah, different perspective to shame and like the, the usefulness of it mm-hmm. because I traditionally think of, you know, even like um, David Hawkins work, you know, with the, the scale of consciousness and like shame being like on the, the very bottom kind of thing. And it's something you really don't want to like feel at all. And you're like, Oh, make it go away. And so being able to navigate it, like just, okay, like, why am I feeling this? And then having, you know, it be able to, to guide you and connect you to your values and, Oh, maybe I'm off somewhere. And so I think that's really useful. But then also what about like the, the shadow of shame or just cause so much have so much stored, you know, emotion stored trauma that contains, these shame stories that are alive in us that are killing us like you like you said so and then right now yeah with everything going on the collective it seems like yeah this collect this contractions that's happening is squeezing all these things out so like shame is coming out of the collective i guess for everyone to work on their own stored shame and or if you have a difference of opinion people are immediately shaming you by calling you names and hating and attacking versus yeah, and this is something I've been reflecting on. I was like, why would that be someone's first reaction? Why wouldn't you just like want to know why they have that opinion or like where they're coming from? Well, Versus- first of all, <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful thing, Mike, that that's your reaction, but that's because you, are, you have developed your consciousness to a point where in the face of that distressing input, rather than go with the more primitive impulse to defend, you know, t- attacking is a way of separating from another person. You know, you, you, you focus on empathy. You reach for empathic resonance. Okay, empathic resonance shuts down the fight-flight anger response. And going back to our talking about warriors, in Hawking's system, there is a point where you stop being value subtracted from the collective and start being value added. It's at 200 on a thousand point scale. And what's the characteristic at that 200 point? Courage. Yeah. Courage is doing what you believe is right in the, in the face of fear, doing the right thing in the face of fear. When someone threatens me, when someone attacks me, I'll feel fear and then I'll regulate it to anger or whatever, or maybe shame, disapproval of myself. Okay, so that causes me to go inward and disconnect. But what's the right thing to do in that moment? Well, it's to have empathic resonance with myself. Okay, I'm going into a shame reaction or a defensive reaction of some sort. Okay, so let's just get centered, Keith. And now there's another person. Let's have empathic resonance with them. What's happening with them that they're feeling a need to attack me? And if I'm in dialogue with them, um, I can engage that. Once we're engaged, person to person, heart to heart, energy to energy, um, the shame falls aside. And now we're looking at, we've, we're, we're cultivating the compassionate witness, which is why all therapists in these days encourage people to do mindfulness practice. You know, it, it's not that we've all become Buddhists. It's just that we've realized that, that the Buddhist practice and the 
the Eastern practice of, of developing a compassionate witness that gets more and more and more and more um, interested in and accepting of a wider range of experiences, what liberates us to make choices. And then out of that inner, inner subjectivity, out of that connection that we create, there's a possibility of change and intimacy. And, and one, thing, one useful thing now is if you take 95% of the Trump supporters and you sat down with them, or say you had a flat tire in front of their house, they come out and help you change the tire. You know, if you're in the, you're in the middle of a f no place and farm and seeding, they, they change it the tire, and then they'd ask you for dinner. Okay, and you know we wouldn't talk about religion or politics. I have a brother who's a Trump supporter. It's like that. They're good people. Now, if you're a good person, but you're at a conformist level of consciousness, which is the, the, the shared beliefs of your mythic mem membership is more important to you than facts or science, which is true. Um, in 1970, 70% of Republicans believed in, men believed in, in science. It's 30% now, okay? So you get very threatened by facts. You don't want to hear them, okay? You want to be part of the mythic membership. And there's a fear that if I don't share the the standards of the mythic membership, they'll exclude me. And we're genetically programmed to be terrified of exclusion from our group. You know, in hunter-gatherers, that was death. Um, uh, there was a bunch of progressive evangelicals who were talking to a friend of mine, David Reardon. And at one point or another, most of them came out in their congregation and said, you know, I don't think that being gay is a sin. For with each one of them, when they did that, half their congregation dropped out of their church. 50%. That, that, was, that was a bridge too far for half of the people that had trusted them up to that point and used them as emissaries, basically, to God. Um, half of them dropped out. Why? I have to stay with the beliefs of, of my mythic membership. I can't risk being outside that. Um, that's too dangerous. And that just goes on until you feel, until you grow to the next level of development, which is a rational level of development, where you're more interested in making things work and in being successful than you are in following the mythic membership rules. That's the rational level. Now that has its blind spot also, but it's more awake and more able to receive influence than the conformist level. Um, and that's, this is basically where the worldviews in the, in the world today, there's egocentric, there's conformist, there's rational, there's pluralistic, and then there's integral. Um, and the integral level has a felt appreciation for all points of view and looks for what's healthy and unhealthy in all the worldviews. And that's the directionality of human development of consciousness, which is always done in relationship with other people. So you mentioned something about shame and be, being useful evolutionary when you're raising mm -hmm. your children. So a lot of people still use shame as like their main parenting tactic, but maybe I don't think they know that they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's like, and then now that people are shaming so much with, especially in social media, because you know, you, you don't actually have to risk being in front of everyone being seen any of that. So it's easy to just rah, go crazy. And so do, do you think there's a connection there between how someone was parented and, and then now they kind of like take that out on everyone else by using shaming because they didn't learn any other tools or didn't really even know that they were shaming. Even like I found myself, uh, I didn't know this was really shaming. I never thought about it. Just little things like, you know, to my wife, if she's doing 
something that I, you know, don't think she should be doing, right? Like, if I think she's on her phone too much and I make little jabs here and there, or if she's sneaking a little too much sugar and I make little comments, that that's shaming. But until I read that in a book, I never realized that. But like, that's like the response that you know, we have in our bodies when somebody makes these comments to us and they're not helpful at all and no one's ever changed their mind because they were shamed. So <laughs> is that just like some evolutionary like programming that we ha haven't evolved past yet? Um, well, uh, the answer to that is yes and no, okay? It, remember, we evolved out of hunter-gatherer groups. Hunter-gatherer groups, um, and I'm not all retro-romantic. We can't go back to that because the cognitive function of hunter-gatherer groups was concrete operational at best. Um, those groups regulated each other emotionally. You know, you, 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 know you, you weren't frightened of being excluded. And if you got ashamed, that was fine. People, you, you had things to do. You go to the shaman and do a ceremony. And, and the, the problem with shame isn't that we shame kids. Kids should be shamed. We need to do it right. Okay, um, and I'll tell you. That look like. I'll tell you what I mean. <laughs> so, okay, so fourteen-month-old, you know, Jimmy goes over to his brother and he hits him in the head, and you go over and you, you you say stop it, and he, you know, he gets embarrassed, he gets ashamed, and you go, you don't hit your brother in the head. It's wrong, you know, and he, like that. And then you pick him up, and you love him, and in ten seconds he's back to happy, sympathetic arousal. Okay, now. Look what just happened. I disapproved of you hitting your brother on the head, but I'm not disapproving of you. I'm disapproving of you hitting your brother in the head. Okay. Second, I made my point, and now I love you. Okay. You are fine with me. Okay. That particular sequence is a sequence that human beings do best with, with social approval and disapproval. Um, parents that are respectful of their children, love them, are interested in the interiors, but disapprove of behavior that is harmful behavior to themselves and other people. Disapprove, the registers, make the point, love the kid. Okay. Those kids grow really well. Now, parents that humiliate a kid go on and on about, about them, go on and on about their character if they make a specific mistake. They cause psychopathology. Um, when people looked at what causes the most psychopathology in childhood trauma, causes the most psychopathology, it wasn't physical abuse or, 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 or emotional and, or neglect or sexual abuse, even though those things are horrible. What causes the absolute most amount in terms of numbers is people being humiliated by caregivers. Having the experience of being, I'm, I'm being shamed and shamed and shamed. So the context is, I approve of you. I'm totally on board with your development. I like your strengths. I like this stuff. If you do something that's harming yourself or somebody else, I don't like it. You feel ashamed. Of course you do. Okay, so what do you do? Follow the rule. You know, I, you know, I, I won't hit Jimmy anymore. Good boy. You know, and he's like, can't do that 14 months, say he's two years. I won't hit Jimmy anymore. Good boy. That's exactly the right attitude. Now I know he's going to hit him again. But I know that at least at that point, that value, you don't hit people just to get gratification, has gone into his nervous system. And he's less likely to do it again. And so he does it again tomorrow. I said, stop him. I just prove of him. They give him a 60-second timeout at that age. You go, why are I giving you a timeout? Because I hit Jimmy. Yeah, we don't hit people. And 
let's go have, let's go play. So appropriately shaming, setting boundaries, appropriately shaming. Trump didn't have enough of this, by the way. Narcissism is often created by people who were both neglected and indulged. You know, bullseye. Get an aggressive person, neglected men and indulge them. Uh, this is why it happens more, more diagnosed with men because testosterone makes us more aggressive. You're gonna produce narcissism. And there funny, it is. Funny note real quick. I remember a while I made a comment or a post saying how, uh, like something about the power of daddy issues and how you can become president like based off that power. It was just right. like, wow, that's impressive. Anyway, go on. Well, look at Hitler. Hitler was beaten by his stepfather and he ended up killing half, you know, he didn't kill half the world, but he, he could have. A, a lot of people died. Very similar psychology. Just, you know, there's a different context. You know, the, the Trump's context but Trump's not uh, a psychopath, a he's a narcissist, right? And there's a difference. That's true. Though, unfortunately, if you're a narcissist um, and you're indulged and you have the capacity to do violence to other people that distress you, which is gratifying, um, you'll become more and more psychopathic. Um, you saw that with, um, in Chile. Um, Allende was a progressive elected in Chile, and he started taking uh, land away from the wealthy landowners who couldn't stand it. So they got together with the military, they overthrew him. They were supposed to overthrow throw him for a few months and then they were gonna have a democracy again. And they took a minor functionary that everybody liked, Pinochet, and put him in charge. People put him in charge so they thought they could manipulate him. He was egocentric, but you know, he didn't seem particularly like an asshole. But he was given the power to do violence to his enemies. And he became one of the most sadistic and repressive dictators in modern history. And he ruled for 17 years. So Trump has gotten more and more willing to order people to do physical violence to other people. He's more interested in it. Um, and so another four years, we'll see a lot more people killed by him. And when he got elected, I knew what was going to happen. And I said, a lot of people are going to die that weren't going to die uh, because of this. And we've, we've seen that. And now we're, we're seeing it in spades with the COVID crisis. So yeah, he's more narcissist. But you put a narcissist in a position of power where they can do violence to gratification, they'll become more and more psychopathic. And so yeah, connection is the, the big part there. And like what you were mentioning with the kids and, and yeah. that's a bit, that's a big part of the, the book, like Dr. Is it Daniel Siegel and the book, No Drama Discipline, and, which is a phenomenal yeah. parenting book. And it's all about connection and you want to reconnect with your kids. So even if you are, well, if you have a, a reaction, right, a knee jerk reaction, you kind of do something that you wish you didn't do them or shame them more than uh, necessary, then, you know, making sure that you connect. Or if you are going to, yeah, just like let them know they're, they were, they were wrong or something isn't okay, always bringing in the element of connection and make, making sure it's not focused on them. It's, you know, their behavior. And exactly. So, yeah, I like that. And then also when I was reading your book, because so I'm a big fan of nonviolent communication, and, but I never, oh, really, yeah. I never really liked that name. And then you said something I know, in your book, which is- because it has violence in it. <laughs> so it's so easy switch, connected communication. And that's yeah. what you, you talk about in your book. So that's the- the word I'm going to use instead of nonviolent communication, just connected communication and how Very that's good. so important, but that's so hard. Like reading that book and practicing in person, I found extremely challenging. My mind blanks. I don't remember like what I'm supposed to say or do. Like, 
I love it in theory. <laughs> Definitely need, still practicing a lot. <laughs> it's all harder than, and it, there's reasons that it's harder. Um, I like Dan Siegel's uh, work. You know, I met him about, I don't know, 15 years ago. My book, The Gift of Shane and the Attuned Family, are heavily influenced by him and Daniel Sh- and uh, Alan Shore's work. Love those guys, the interpersonal neurobiology people. Um, uh, the interpersonal neurobiology system, bringing in neurobiology in relationship, attachment theory, and all that stuff has revolutionized our understanding of human development. Um, now, that being said, uh, there are some basic uh, principles about how we function that, are, that aren't widely known, um, which is interesting to me. Uh, if, I, I'll give you an example. Okay, so when our nervous system is always monitoring hundreds of thousands of inputs, yours and mine is now. And right now, you and I feel safe with each other. So, you know, Mike's feel safe with Keith, I feel safe with Mike. We're socially engaged. And so social engagement is the most sophisticated human in, uh, function. And we want to spend as much time doing it as possible. That's why we like to hang out with people we like. Okay. If our nervous system reads any kind of threat, it instantiates a defensive state. What's a defensive state? We have amplified or numbed emotions. We have distorted perspectives to justify destructive impulses. And we have diminished capacities for self-reflection and empathy. And the reason why the nervous system does that is when we feel threat, we need to separate empathically from another person, prepare ourselves for fight or flight or freeze. Um, And we need to act now. And so the emotions need to go up. The destructive impulse happens because we, we need to feel more urgent. We need that distorted perspective to justify our destructive impulse. Okay, that happens in 40 milliseconds when we feel threatened. Now, if I threaten you and you go into a defensive state, my nervous system will then, uh, and you are defensive, I'll be threatened by you, I'll go into a defensive state. And now we have a relational defensive pattern that we're enacting. And we don't realize it, but we've cut ourselves off empathically. We have more difficulty, as you said, with self-reflection. And we're kind of burdened by that distorted perspective, that negative story and by those intense emotions, those amplified or numbed emotions. It's very, very difficult to reach for self-reflection and empathy under those circumstances, but we can learn how to do it. How do we learn how to do it? Well, we lower our arousal level. Now we're getting into polyvagal system. You know, social engagement happens if we're not too hyped up into anger or fear or not too collapsed into shame or depression. Got to stay in that sweet spot. Uh, Dan Siegel calls it the window of tolerance, okay? And he got that from Pat Ogden. We got it from somebody else. I don't know. Everybody gets everything from everybody. And so you calm yourself down. You calm down that amplified emotion. You you, you question that distorted perspective. I don't trust anything I think when I'm pissed off at somebody. Just don't trust those stories. And then you reach for self-reflection, compassionate understanding of yourself, compassionate understanding of others. And if it's a person, you want to reach for some kind of resolve, some kind of repair. Now, that's difficult. That's, that's a mature capacity. It requires, it requires development on the integration of defenses line of development. And it's a lifelong process. We just keep doing it, doing it, and doing it. We get better and better at it. And still, we'll get hijacked. If we get threatened in the right kind of way, bam, we're in that defensive state. And when we are, we're at risk to... 
attack other people, attack ourselves. Sometimes the person we attack is ourselves. And there's a certain amount of dissociation from our wise self um, when that happens. All the defenses involve dissociation. Just like that little kid, he's shamed. He kind of disappears. You know, he blushes, looks down, can't think very clearly. His eyes go down. Okay, to remember what you're about when you're beginning to dissociate is, is an acquired skill. Um, but we can do it. And all the people in the helping professions know about this because that's what we do. We socially engage with people and then look at difficult stuff with them, looking for compassionate understanding and right action, which you know, brings us to the original Buddhist principles that permeate basically everybody's spirit. The people that are spiritual but not religious, which is an increasing number of people in this country, generally have some version of the Four Noble Truths. It's interesting that it goes back to Theravada and Buddhism so often. Um, I find that fascinating. Uh, that those guys, those guys uh, during that period came up with a lot of cool stuff that we're still, still the coolest stuff. You know, that mm -hmm. we haven't to come up with something better than the dialectic. Um, the Four Noble Truths, you know, the, eight, the, you know, the, uh, the Eightfold Path, basically that's the basis of almost every psychological healing technique that anybody can talk about. Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah, that was my gateway drug into spirituality was Buddhism and Taoism. And they're still favorites that I like to turn back to. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I studied with a Taoist priest, studied healing with him and martial arts with him for two or three years back in the late 70s. He was, he was narcissistic, but he was brilliant and had a great technique and, you know, and a great martial artist. Boy, I learned a lot. And it, it, it took me deeper into uh, the... The Taoist principles of moving energy, which uh, are just necessary. You, to be able to help people, you need to be able to feel energy and, and move energy in some fashion. Uh, yeah, and especially with, you know, you work with so many people and throughout the years, I'm sure you, you know, really have to have taken really good care of your, your body, your physical body and your health so that doesn't drain you and wear you down. I mean, you're you're still doing it still loving it it seems like yeah i do i get anxious in the morning and as soon as i start i'm good i'm 70 years old and i've taken pretty good care of myself for 70 years uh no i've made some mistakes in retrospect as all of us have um yeah uh the where the, the wear and tear happens through um blind spots um you know people that work themselves into um collapse there's a blind spot. Um, people that, um, what's that blind spot? Well, there's some level of, of indirect, of passive aggressive action in, in, in pushing yourself so hard that you, that you personally collapse. You know, so if to create a sustainable life, part of it is you need to provide the foundations working up from the bottom chakras, right? And so, yeah, physically, I need to be okay. I mean, I, uh, relationally, I need to be uh, coherent. Spiritually, I need to be aligned with my, my core values. Um, uh, in terms of my, my pleasures, I need to be able to enjoy them without um, being so attached that I become addicted. You know, these, these, I need to have a, a, a sense of, of understanding of my own vulnerabilities to get pulled into um, uh, 
either egocentric or defensive modes with other people, noticing that and then learn how to regulate out of those things. Um, that's very difficult. Uh, uh, it's hard for people to recognize that in a way getting caught up in a shame cycle is just as egoic as getting caught up in a pride cycle or I'm the greatest. Both of those are egoic attachments. Okay. So if you observe both of them from the witness with compassion and understanding, too much shame and self-loathing is basically an egocentric, passive-aggressive response to, I don't want to really have to acknowledge I screwed up and I have to make an adjustment. And too much I'm the greatest is I'm not acknowledging that we're always a work in process and there's always people that are better or worse than me and anything. And, and then from that balanced state, they're still there, but from that compassion and understanding, you're liberated from the suffering of those two things. And that's the direction that we want to go. Right, right. Wonderful. So do you have time for one final question? Of course. Okay. So based off of 60,000 plus sessions, you know, being intimately involved in people's experience, right, in their, in their psyches and in their healing, what is one thing that has awed you the most? And what is one thing that has shocked you the most? The thing about, that's about me, people, about humanity. Yeah. The thing that odds me the most is that is that people have superpowers. They're called cities in in the, in the Hindu. Any normal, any any human being, if they focus their attention, focused intent and action in service of principle and driven by resolve, that's a human superpower. And any human being can has superpowers of love, of action, of creativity. Uh, it's, it's just overwhelming to me. It's, uh, it's, we're as different from cats as cats are from rocks around that. And that's that the human, the miracle of self-aware consciousness. So that's the thing that's just, uh, the, 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 now the other part of it is the understanding that at least, and this is, comes from a lot from my integral studies, Whatever worldview we're in, there's destructive shadow. We all have it all the time. Parts of us that want to respond in a destructive fashion to something or cultural constraints that cause us to, um, to want to behave in a destructive fashion. And that, uh, that negative, uh, that destructive shadow uh, uh, is something that we all have to deal with every day. You know, you, me, everybody, okay? And uh, it's dangerous. On a collective level, we see it in the country. Uh, right now, we're seeing what's called projective identification happening on a cultural level. What's projective identification? I take my negative self, project it onto you and attack you. And I'm avoiding my, my destructive self as long as I'm attacking you. Okay, so that's why when Obama got elected, they kept calling him Hitler and saying, accusing him of, of, of nasty things. They, they took their, the, the, at least the people that were doing that were taking their own violence and rage and, and racism, essentially, projecting it onto him and then attacking, 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 because so we won't have to look at our own violence. And that's what creates, that's objectification and attack for gratification. And by God, when that happens, um, human beings are capable of of destruction beyond the realm of anybody's imagination we're de we're currently destroying the planet 
just after everybody breathed a sigh of relief that it doesn't look like we're going to have a nuclear holocaust. Oh, wait a minute. We don't need a nuclear holocaust to, this, to the, destroy the planet. All we need to do is just keep on having the same environmental policies that we've had. That'll destroy the planet. Um, that power is, is intimidating and staggering. Now, of course, the constructive shadow part of that is we have the power to create a homeostasis in the ecosystem and homeostasis in our life of joy and love. We have those superpowers. We can do that. I eventually, I think humanity will on a larger level, and I've seen it happening more on the personal and relational level. Um, in my book, Loving Completely, it was designed to help couples do that with each other and with their children. So, so that's the thing that's the scariest, but also that's the thing that's the most beautiful. Wow, that's so cool. Um, it also reminds me, or maybe this is another way to say that, is yeah, humanity's power of, of life and their power of death, right? And yeah. destruction and chaos and that, you know, there's, and that, you know, the, the same thing on, on, right, on the same spectrum, <clears throat> just different ends and that there is an incredible power within that and we have the ability to decide which end do we want to promote <laughs> yeah and, and and so you know you've decided and it makes you a more joyful man and i know what i've decided it makes me at peace with myself and generally that's the case with development the more you decide towards love and compassion the more at peace you are with yourself and with the world around you um, mm. that's not a coincidence that's the, that's the way the universe is organized development moves towards more compassion and deeper consciousness. I think so. I think so. Well, this was a gift. I appreciate you and I appreciate you being here. And where should people go to find you? What's the easiest way? What book should they start with? Have your, all your books? <laughs> great, great. Well, boy, I have eight <laughs> books and two children and I don't really have any favorites. But that being said, you can go to drkeithwit.com. Okay. And you can see a lot of stuff there, lectures. I have a, I have a, a class I just put out a, a while ago called uh, 100 Reasons to Not Have a Secret Affair. And there are 100 reasons. Um, uh, I suggest you start, interestingly, I, I suggest you start with my book, Loving Completely, because everything is relationship. Um, the book that you're talking about, Shadow Light, um, Shadow Light is, is, is a, a re-understanding uh, I think shadow has been misunderstood in the world, and and I wanted to write a book to have a have a more complete understanding. Um, and if you're an action-oriented person, read my book Integral Mindfulness. Um, okay, so mindfulness gets us started, but then what do we do? Uh, Integral Mindfulness provides a roadmap uh, for living a life from a mindful place. So though, I'd say those three. Though, like I said, I like all my books. Beautiful, beautiful. I have three or four of them, and I'll at some point you know read them all i'm sure so yeah thanks again for being here and that's that's a wrap for today my pleasure much love to everybody